Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And he writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight, or like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Psalm 90. This morning we open up to the fourth book of the Psalms, which if you've been tracking along with us, you know that this corresponds, each of these books in the Psalms corresponds to the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, And this fourth book then would correspond to the book of what? Numbers. Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So Numbers is number four, and now we're in book four. And so if there is a parallel, as we've been seeing, we should continue to see that parallel uh, in the Psalms. Now it's no coincidence that the next 17 Psalms we're going to cover have to do with Numbers. Psalm 90, verse 12, as we just read, says, Teach us to number our days. But in addition to Numbers, the the book of Numbers also centers around the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And so Psalm 90 through 106 can be, and you will see, I believe, this to be true, can be called Psalms for the Wilderness. We've had Psalms for the Sanctuary in the last section, book 3, talking about the Levitical Psalms. Well, now we're in the Psalms of the Numbers, or Psalms for the Wilderness. And isn't that appropriate that the first of these Psalms would be written by Moses? Moses, who led the people in the wilderness those entire 40 years. Moses, the leader of the people, the deliverer, who now is with the people in the wilderness. Now, Psalm 90 is the only psalm in the entire book of 150 psalms that we know for certain was written by Moses. Although there's good evidence that Psalm 91 was probably written by him as well, and we'll talk about that Wednesday night. But if we were organizing the psalms on a timeline, consider this, Psalm 90 would actually, historically, timeline-wise, Psalm 90 would be Psalm 1. Because being written by Moses, this is the oldest psalm in the book of Psalms. This is the one written by the man who predates all the other psalm writers by at least 500 years. And so we go back. This psalm, one of the three oldest sections 
of Scripture that we have today. Look again at the heading. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And that's significant. Prayer of Moses, the man of God. There are only eight men in the entire Bible who were ever referred to as man of God. Moses was the first. And then Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, David, Shemaiah, Hanan, and finally, last but not least, in the New Testament, one man was called a man of God. Do you know who that was? Jesus. Any guesses? Jesus? Anyone else? Might surprise you. Timothy. Young Pastor Timothy. The one that Paul said, don't let anyone look down on your youth. He was apparently a young man when he started pastoring there at the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes to Timothy saying in 1 Timothy 6.11, You man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, men, let me speak to you directly just for a moment. 1 Timothy 6.11 would be a real good verse to set to memory. If, in fact, you want to be a man of God. Because in that verse, Paul describes characteristics of a man of God. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Six things. Which is appropriate, six being the number of a man in the Bible. And these six things, Paul says, Timothy, pursue these. Mark that, gentlemen. Because these describe a man of God. Think about it this way. By contrast, a man's man is ambitious. God's man is righteous. A man's man would be schooled in worldliness. God's man learns godliness. A man's man knows where he's going. God's man walks by faith. A man's man is lustful. And I'm not just talking sexually. I'm talking that whole picture that we see, especially in our society, of a, of a real rugged man who's, who's outdoorsy and who likes to eat raw flesh. And, you know, he's, just, he's tough and he's drinking and he's with the boys. And they're, you know, a lustful man. God's man, by contrast, loves. A man's man knows when to fish or cut bait. God's man perseveres. He's steady. He stays the course. A man's man is tough. God's man, my favorite designation here, is gentle. Righteous, godly, faithful, loving, persevering, and gentle. These things describe a man of God. And Spencer jumped ahead of me and said, Jesus, and he's right, because there is only one man in all the Bible who is the perfect example of a man of God, and that is the God-man Jesus Christ. Romans 8.3 tells us, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. We need the Spirit, truly, to be men of God. To be godly men. To be godly women. Ladies, and draw yourselves into this as well. If you want to be a godly woman, you're going to need the Spirit of God to do so, because it is not something achieved in the flesh. Now back to Moses, the first man of God in the Bible. Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. Moses, the man of God. Now, you might say, hang on a second. Didn't Moses write Deuteronomy? Yeah, he did. So, Deuteronomy 33, 1, he calls himself a man of God. Isn't that a bit pompous? I mean, how would you feel if I came up here this morning and I said, a sermon 
by the man of God, Pastor Rick Crawford. (laughs) Who am I to call myself the man of God? Who is Moses to stand up there and say, Moses, the man of God? And, you know, here it is again, the designation in Psalm 90, prayer of Moses, the man of God. Where's he coming from? Interesting. You know, Paul called Timothy a man of God. That's cool, because Paul called Timothy, and Timothy could humbly say, well, that's not me, or, or, or thank you, Paul, or, or be, be moved by that designation. But to Mo, for Moses to call himself man of God, we might say that's an arrogant statement. But in truth, it is not at all. Because the reality is to bear the title man of God is not arrogance, it's aspiration. I want to be a man of God. Am I always? Absolutely not. But it is my greatest desire. It's my heart's desire to be a man of God, to live my life as a godly man. Every man, every woman in here should hope, should desire, should passionately be pursuing that concept of being a person of God, a woman of God, a man of God in our lives. And it's not about human determination, it's about godly dependency. And so Moses calling himself man of God before all Israel, what he's in essence saying is, hey Israel, I am absolutely dependent on God. If you see anything good come out of my hands, anything good come out of my lips, it is because I am dependent on God 100% for my life, for my existence. Moses could just as easily have, have said what Jim Crouch likes to say from time to time, I'm just a tool in God's toolbox. That's it. I'm a hammer. I'm a wrench. I'm a little nail. I'm whatever God needs me to be that He might reach in and use me when the time is right. Now the context of Psalm 90. The context, the background for the psalm actually begins back in Numbers 14. If you'd like to turn your Bibles back there, Numbers 14. As we track through these psalms of the wilderness, we'll see the parallels again with the book of Numbers. And Numbers 14 is an interesting story. In fact, it's a moment of crisis in the history of the people of Israel. You may recall, after deliverance from Egypt, out of their bondage, they traveled under the leadership of Moses. They they had the phenomenal Red Sea crossing. They ended up at Mount Sinai, which, by the way, was probably not in the Sinai Peninsula, but was in the Arabian Peninsula. Because, as we're told, Moses, or, or Paul talked about it being in Midian which was not in Sinai, it was in Arabia. He even uses the word Arabia, Paul does in the Galatians letter. So Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, was probably in the Arabian Peninsula, the sea they crossed would have been the Gulf of Aqaba, which I can talk about another time. But they cross that, they end up at the mountain, they're two years at the mountain, there with the Lord, receiving the law, having a cow, receiving the law again, because they had a cow, and the worship of the golden calf and that whole mess, but God keeps them there and teaches them there, and then from there leads them right up to the border of the promised land. Kadesh Barnea. That's where they are when we come to Numbers 14. They're on the border of Kadesh Barnea, and they send 12 spies in to check out the land that they're ready to take with the leadership of God and his servant Moses. Well, 10 men came back wimps, only two came back warriors. Only two could even sign up for your mentors and warriors list because the rest were a bunch of pansies. These spies came back saying, oh, there's, well, let's read about it. They're so big. They're so large and we're so tiny. Verse 32 of Numbers 13, back it up a bit. They gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, 
the land for which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. And they're part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And man, that bugs me. Grasshoppers, bugs, insect. Wondering if you were with me or zoning out there. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And they continued on. It says, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. I'm so thankful that never happens at the bridge. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Really? I made a little comment about grumbling just to say there's there's a significant uh, principle that we need to embrace that I believe every church fellowship needs to embrace. And it is the principle of not grumbling in our tents. Because the reality is that was the biggest problem Israel had. The word was given. They heard it from Moses. The Lord said, I want you to go into the land. And everybody went back to their tents and began to murmur and grumble and complain. And again, husbands and wives, do you find yourselves doing that from time to time? You close the door and you figure, well, this is the one safe place I can do it without it being gossip. Honey, i got to tell you some stuff. Blah! And what ends up happening at the end of the grumbling, you don't feel better, you don't feel released, you're more angry. And now your spouse is in with you. And now the two of you are... And back and forth, and it's just... And it's destructive, and it's dangerous, and it's hurtful. And let me tell you, if you ever come out of a conversation at home looking more negatively at a brother or sister in the body, that conversation is sin. My opinion. We are to love each other. Build each other up. And if anything in our homes, rather than grumbling, looking for what can we say that will build up the body of Christ. Well, they grumble and complain and they whine and they they cry. And you ask the question, why would the people want to go back to Egypt? One word, fear. Fear. Ten of the twelve come back and say, these guys are giants. They're huge. How will we ever be able to face giants? Of course, no one had experienced the whole David and Goliath story yet, so they couldn't ping off of that one. And so they all were afraid. I think we need to understand something about fear. And that is this. Wherever our fear goes, listen, wherever our fear goes, that's where our faith goes as well. What you fear is where you put your faith. What do you mean by that? Twelve spies went into the land. Ten spies saw huge foes, like grasshoppers to them. Interestingly, Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 22, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So as the spies are fearing the size of these men, they're forgetting the size of their God. And so their fear was now in the enemy rather than their faith being in God. Two spies had great faith. Rather than seeing huge foes, they saw a huge feast. They saw a land flowing with milk and honey. They saw grapes the size of basketballs. They came back saying, this is a great land. And furthermore, 
the giants that these guys were talking about, Joshua and Caleb, they described them as, in verse 9 of Numbers 14, said, don't rebel against the Lord, don't fear the people of their land, they will be our prey. The word prey there is lachem, as in bet lachem, house of bread. The giants, they're bread for our lunches, guys. We can make peanut butter and jelly out of these giants. They are nothing but bread. Huge foes were seen by the fearful. A huge feast was seen by the faithful. What was the difference? Again, the ten spies feared giants. The two spies feared God. Wherever our fear goes, that's where our faith goes. The difference between seeing in the flesh or having faith is where you place your fear. Let's make that personal and practical. If you fear the enemy, Satan, your faith goes to him. What do you mean by that? I don't mean as a follower. But I mean if you spend your life fearing the enemy and fearing Satan, you will ascribe strength to him and he will become larger and larger before you until you're like a grasshopper before him. But if you fear the Lord, you have nothing else to fear. You put your fear in the Lord, your faith will not shrink. It will grow. Recognizing His might, His splendor, His awesome power, His ability to walk you through any circumstance of life. If you fear the Lord, I think about Ryan Green. Who, by the way, is cancer-free. Amazing. Having cancer there, a tumor found in his kidney, and they told him this is one of the fastest spreading, most dangerous, most rare forms of cancer you can get. Goes in, has surgery, comes out of the surgery, and the doctor says no chemo is necessary. Really? And Ryan and Sarah, I'll tell you what, they're not here so we can, we can have a chat about them. I am so impressed with this young couple because of their faith. Their faith. They just to, to talk to Ryan. He comes here and we're praying with him. Next thing you know, he's praying for everybody else. Because he's a man of faith, a man of God. Ryan Green would be a man of God. Because of where his faith went, even his fear, his fear was of the Lord. 1 John 5 verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Man, don't spiritualize that. Don't make that some kind of religious, uh, you know, churchy kind of a phrase. Overcoming the world, which means whatever your immediate problem right now, God is capable of dealing with it. doesn't matter what it is. Man, if He can best the giants of the land, He can truly handle your problems and mine. The victory that overcomes the world. And who is the one who overcomes the world, John says? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. But the children of Israel feared the enemy more than they feared God. And so right there on the border of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea, they're on the verge of receiving all the promises that God had given them up to date. They fell apart. Because their fear was in the enemy and not in the Lord. God was so angry. And if it weren't so tragic, it would be almost comical because he turns to Moses and he says, okay, I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. Forget that. Moses, you're my guy. Let's just uh, make a people out of you. We're going to start right here with you and your wife and your children and we'll go from there because I am tired of them. And Moses, the man of God, does what a man of God does. He intercedes for the people. 
and God pardons them. But down in verse 22 of Numbers 14, the Lord says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. I'll pardon them, but they're not going into the promised land. They lose the promise. But, verse 24, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Joshua and Caleb will go in. Mad dog Caleb. That's what Caleb's name means. And you know what Caleb will be doing in his old age, don't you? Fighting giants. He goes into the land, and once the land is cleared enough for Israel to be in the land, he goes to Joshua and says, Hey, can I go live on these hills because I hear there's still some giants there? (laughs) I want to live there. And this guy fought to the day of his death. Amazing. Down in verse 33, Numbers 14. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. The rest of the story is detailed there in the book of Numbers. One by one, the people dropped off. One by one, grain by grain, dust returned to dust in the wilderness. And at some point during this time, Moses sat down and wrote Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, and from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. There are several things here in this psalm that Moses recognizes that are worth noting and have great practical application. In fact, we're going to look at the psalm two ways this morning. Practically and a little bit prophetically. Watch this. Number one, God alone sets the standard for life. God alone sets the standard for life. We we had dinner with Sean and Mary Lee last night and, and as we were talking there at the table... Marilee was sharing about a friend who was coming to her and, uh, and was just talking about how man, everything just seems to be going wrong. And this friend isn't a believer in Jesus right now. Not yet. And she was talking about the negative energy. So much negative energy in the world around us. And, and she made the statement to Marilee, you know, where do you go? Where, do you tur- where can you turn? And the answer... The answer is obvious. God alone sets the standard for life. And we all get to those places where you have to ask the question, where do I turn? Where do I go with this? And if you walk with the Lord, you know where you have to go. You go to the Lord. You, you have a place to run. And it's marvelous to know that I've got, oh, I, can, I can rest in the presence of God. I don't worry about negative or positive energy. You know, unless I'm, you know, trying to put batteries in toys at Christmas, that's a different thing. But just to be there with God and to be able to trust Him and know He sets the standard for life. Notice verse 2, the phrase, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's literally from vanishing point 
to vanishing point. Imagine yourself standing there at the top of the Cascades and you look out in one direction and you look as far as you can see but eventually it becomes hazy and you just can't see. There's a vanishing point there. You can't see beyond it. You turn the other way and look in the opposite direction and you can see quite a distance but eventually there's a vanishing point there and this is eternity described. That there's a point at which we can't even see it goes so far back because it continues going back. A God who always has been. <laughs> and I just when I did youth ministry, it was one of my favorite conversations to have with kids, just to watch their little brains go, you know. Because you'd say, hey, you, you believe in eternity, right? That when you die, you can live forever? Oh yeah, I can, I can believe that direction forever. You know, God's lived forever. What? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, just, he's just always been. There was never a beginning. And that's the place that we have trouble believing. That's the place where we think, how, how can there not have been a beginning for God? But there hasn't been. From vanishing point to vanishing point. From everlasting to everlasting, God has never not existed. He has always been. You realize there's truly no such thing as nothingness? There's no such thing as nothingness. Because God has always been. So in that place where nothing else could possibly exist, God's there. You know, you can't even conceive of nothingness. Those of you watching The Truth Project, do you remember what Del Tackett talked about on that? He said, try to imagine nothing. Go ahead. Imagine nothing. I can't do it. You know, I don't know if there are some people who could sit there with a little drool coming out of their mouth and just be in the place of nothing, but you can't, you can't go to nothingness. Because where nothing is, God is still in existence. And He is the source of our very lives. And that's what Moses is saying. God, You're our source of life. We come from You. We exist because of You. Deuteronomy 33.27 Moses wrote at that time, The eternal God is a dwelling place. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And wait a minute, wasn't Paul talking about Jesus there? Exactly. 1 John 5.20 tells us, We know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. There's your answer. Your friends answer merrily. He's given us understanding. We know. We know where the truth is. And John writes, We are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is true God and eternal life. Jesus. True God and eternal life. That, that just... That is just amazing to me to think of Jesus as eternal life. It's like, like putting eternity in a Timex. You know? How is this even possible and yet the eternal God put on human flesh and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus is eternal both immediately and eternally He is wonderful and there is no life that He does not give or maintain which means you are breathing and thinking and being here this morning because Jesus Christ said I want you alive I want you to have life And the truth is, whether we choose to fear Him or put our faith in Him or not, we're alive this morning because of Him. 
And it's ironic to walk out in the world among throngs of people who don't even have a recognition of Jesus in their lives and yet are living because He chose for them to have life. There is no life that doesn't come from Him. Genesis 2.7 The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being from everlasting to everlasting. You gave... Before the mountains were born, he says, you gave birth to the earth. But note that, Genesis 2-7, and we talked about this seven years ago when we started this walk through the Bible. The phrase living being, the phrase living being in Genesis 2-7 in the Hebrew is kayi nefesh. And that word literally means it's only applied to one other being in all of Scripture. It's applied to man in Genesis And it's applied in Ezekiel chapter 1 to the angels. So the only ones in Scripture ever referred to as living beings are eternal beings. This is not a phrase that is ever applied to animals. And if you love animals, I say that with no apology. You should love them, cute little creatures. But man and animals do not share the same spirit. They don't. We're told different things about animals and men, mankind, living beings, eternal beings. And we all want to think that somehow Fluffy's going to be there. And if Fluffy's a cat, there's always that possibility. I shouldn't tell that joke again, should I? No, I'm told. <laughs> Have any of you not heard my joke of the how many cats there are, what, that there will be cats in heaven? Hey, cats and horses. Cats and horses will be in heaven. We know the horses, Jesus coming back on the white horse, and those coming back with them riding on white. So horses in heaven. And we know cats have to be in heaven because they've got to string the harps with something. Horse hair? Well, sure, I mean, if you want one of those dry-sounding harps, but... Anyway, I'm not saying don't love God's creation and God's creatures and don't care for them. What I'm saying is the emphasis in our world on elevating animal life to the place of human life is Godless, Because that's not how God did it. And to say it's more important... Don't get me on my soapbox. To say it's more important to protect species than it is... To maintain and encourage and grow human life. See, that's why right now we're still in the barn instead of on our property. The Army Corps of Engineers has come back and said, we need more studies about what species might be on that property before we can allow you to build a property that you own. It amazes me. I'm not going to get political. I promised myself I wouldn't do that. It's a little infuriating. The standard that God set for life is eternity. That's God's standard for life. Eternity. We were created eternal beings to live with Him eternally. And it's only because of sin entering in the world that death became a part of this in the first place. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He has set eternity in their hearts. Which is how we can even conceive of this concept at all. He gives life to every man and woman. And marvelously He extends that life on into eternity for everyone who comes back to Him to receive it. 
Jesus said in John 5.21, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. And so Moses, all those years before, there in the wilderness, recognizes the Jewish people had life. But they rejected it. They had life to go into the promised land and live. But they denied it and now they are dying. Verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood and they fall asleep. By the way, that phrase, fall asleep, doesn't speak of soul sleep. It, it literally is, they become like a sleep. Because when someone dies, truly, their, their physical shell looks like it's asleep. And so that's what Moses, he's describing that look. They become as asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. And toward evening, it fades and withers away. There are days when I feel like I'm fading, <laughs> withering away. Just look in the mirror and think, boy... Anyway, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we've been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Hmm. Lewis Ferry Chafer said this, he said, Every secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. That'll shake you up a bit. <laughs> which means all the things that we think we're getting away with because nobody else in the church knows what I'm doing right now all the angels are going huh, check that out what are you doing? it's not a hidden thing we think we have secret sins no such thing and I'm not saying that to say you know that thumb is on you God's eye is on you he's just waiting for you to mess up no, it's just that there's a full awareness of our lives we think we're hiding we're not hiding anything We think we've got it all together in front of our brothers and sisters, and the truth is, well, most of us know what you're doing anyway, so... But they're in heaven. Though we think we're so smart here on earth, we're not getting away with anything. We can't hide our sin. Verse 9, For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? And it's sad, really, if you think about it. To live a life outside of Christ Jesus. To be diminished to nothing more than a sigh at the end of it all. That's a great description. Just a sigh. And that's it. That's it. All of your work, all of your accomplishments, all of your achievements, all that you've done, and it ends with a sigh. Is that really all there is? People ask the question all the time, especially those who don't know Christ, and they watch a loved one pass away, and they hear the final sigh, and they say, a hit that's over it's why the godly man is so different than the worldly man 
Because the last breath is not a sigh of sorrow or longing for more life on earth. The last breath of Jesus. What was, it wasn't a sigh at all. It was a shout. You remember Jesus' last breath? John 19.30 It is finished! And He died. The last thing He said Tetelestai in the Greek. It's done. Completed. I mean, talk about a life fulfilled. Jesus had that life in 33 years. Completely fulfilled. And by the way, it wasn't a life fulfilled for 33 years. It was a life fulfilled for all history. When He cried in that last cry. But in the wilderness, think about this. Moses out there with the people, and he survived the entire 40 years, at least to the end. He didn't go in. But he walked with them and he was with them and he would have seen as many as some estimate a million people die in the wilderness. Lives ending as a sigh. God alone sets the standard for life. Secondly, Moses now suggests the wisdom of counting. The wisdom of counting. Teach us, verse 12, to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What a famous verse. Number our days. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. Teach us, Lord, how to make our lives count. Literally. It's not, hey, look at the money I've made or the mansions I've built or the mark I left or the things that I accomplished here. Hey, this is all going to burn away like chaff. Anything you do here, the question is, will it remain on into eternity? As opposed to, I'm not worried about the building over there. I, I get frustrated from time to time with, with county regulations and, and you know, now literally with the Army Corps of Engineers, the federal government stepping in and getting involved. And, and I look at all this stuff and it's frustrating, but, but truly, hey, if we're in this barn until Jesus comes, praise the Lord, it's going to burn anyway. And we can put all kinds of time and effort and energy into a building. And if God so desires, we will. But it's going to burn. So let's not worry too much about how pretty it is, okay? When it gets built, let's just put something over our heads so we can continue to worship the Lord God. But what's going on here? Moses is saying we've got to learn how to number our days, to take one day at a time, to stop and consider this. If you want your life to count, here's how, here's how you make your life count. Here's how you number your days. One day at a time. You focus on today. Let today count. Number each day. It's not about numbering of worry. It's not about saying, I have 475 days left of my life and I've got to make something happen. You know? Number the days. Jesus put it this way. Matthew 6.27 Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Matthew 6.34 Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The wisdom of Christ. Just deal with today. One day at a time, numbering each day, making it count. This is wisdom. Verse 12 goes on and says, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And Bible students, you know the personification of wisdom in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 1.30 By His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Colossians 2.3 tells us, In Him, in Christ Jesus, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we finish the Psalms, we go into the Proverbs, the book of wisdom. But guess what? It's going to tell us about Jesus. Because He is wisdom personified. Well, 
You Christians say things like that, and it sounds like what you're saying, that outside of Jesus, every, everything else is idiocy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much true. Because we're deluding ourselves outside of Christ into thinking we are doing anything of lasting value. And that is the heart of wisdom, the heart that is full of Jesus. The heart that says there's only one thing in life that matters. Only one thing. Jesus. Because anything without Jesus is truly limited to the number of days on the calendar that we have in this world. To live without Christ is to live by the calendar and nothing else of any significance. And that is plain foolishness. Why settle for immediacy when we can have eternity? Why settle for the now when we can have now and then? And that's why, and you know, that's why there's so much fear of death in our world. Because I'm running out of time. And I see someone around me die. And Sean, we said this last night, we're at the age now where a lot of those who have been mentors and heroes to me and to Sean and our lives are passing away. And it's, it's just, it, it's kind of, it stops you in your, in your tracks. And you begin to count your days. And you also begin to recognize the truest of heroes are those who died in Christ Jesus. Because they did not die with a sigh. They die with a shout of glory. Well, there are those who say, I'm even among Christians, and this is the one that's, that shocks me at times. Christians who say, I'm just not ready to go. Or, I'm just not ready for Him to come back yet. Let me, let me just give you a, um, a three-word solution for that. Man, get ready. Get ready. We are called to live lives of readiness. Ready today. In this moment, if I walked out of here and tripped and landed on my head and died, take me home, Lord Jesus. I am ready to go. Get ready. Well, how do I get ready? Can you say, in all honesty, there is nothing more in this life that I want more than Jesus? If you can say that, you're ready. And if you can say that, let me ask you, why not? What else am I looking for? What else could we be looking for that will satisfy you more than Jesus Christ? He's the satisfaction. Moses says, do return, O Lord. Hey, that's the way the Bible ends. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do return, O Lord. How long? And, And be sorry for your servants. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. The word morning there in verse 14 is the Hebrew word boker. Boker. You say good morning in, in Israel by saying boker tov. Now, I'll never forget the first time I heard that phrase. I was getting into an elevator there in Jerusalem and uh, an old Jewish rabbi was standing there and he had his books and his little yarmulke, you know, and, and he had very serious, had his prayer shawl, and he's sitting there kind of in the corner, short guy, too. He must have been maybe three and a half feet tall. <laughs> and I walk into the elevator and, and, you know, American Pastor Rick, hey, good morning! And, you know, and he goes, Bokertol. And I'm like, did he just ask me out? <laughs> and I went to our tour guide. This rabbi said, Boker told to me. And then the tour guide means good morning. Oh, okay. And I felt bad because I didn't speak to him the whole way down the elevator. <laughs> yeah, well, Boker, you're tall, sir. Boker told, good 
morning. Satisfy us in the morning. You want a good morning? Number three in the notes, gang, God alone satisfies us in the morning. You will not find satisfaction anywhere else as you do in the Lord God. Moses says, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. I love that. Moses says, for every bad day, would you give us a good one? For every bad year, Lord, would you trade that out for a good year? And God more than answers Moses' plea. In fact, God doubles it up. Isaiah 61, verse 7, He says, Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. They will possess, therefore, a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs. God hears every prayer. And He responds far more than we realize He is capable of responding. Yeah, for every split second of struggle here, There's an eternity of joy and satisfaction at the coming of Jesus in the morning. Verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. I love that. Confirm. Literally, and some of your margins might say this, the word means give permeance. Or permanence. Give permanence to the work of our hands. Let me do something that lasts, Lord. And Moses knows how to pray it. Confirm it for us. Take the work of my hands and Lord, you make it permanent because the work of my hands on my own is not a permanent thing. But you, Lord, make it permanent. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, Body of Christ, for we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He's already got the good works ready to go. Step in it. That's all you got to do. Step up, put forth your hands, and start doing what God already prepared for you to do. And by the way, that doesn't mean signing up for a ministry at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Your greatest ministry is in your life. It's where you work. It's who you interact with. It's how you represent Christ in Anacortes or in Oak Harbor. Or wherever it is that you live or work. That is your ministry. First and foremost, don't separate out. Well, I've got my work life and my church life, but I serve at my church. No, no, no. You serve the Lord in your workplace. At your school. You serve Him wherever He has you. That is your place of ministry. That's where you pray, Lord, confirm the work of my hands. Hey, it's great. We need people to move chairs around in here from time to time. But that's not going to last. The chairs are going to burn. What's going to last is the life that you touch. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Christians, ask yourselves, what am I doing of eternal value? What am I doing that lasts forever? What will I do that will still be there when Jesus comes? If you're not a Christian this morning, if you are not into Jesus, the most important single thing you can do with your life is get into Jesus. Give your life to Him. But if you are in Jesus, I want to remind you this passage we've looked at a few times before. 1 Corinthians 3.11 Where Paul says, No one, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, there is no other foundation, there is no other truth in life that that matters or lasts like Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation that is on Christ, 
So this is building among believers. If you build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he will be saved yet as though through fire. This is talking to believers in Christ Jesus. Followers of Jesus. And there will be those who are receiving rewards and there will be those who are putting out the fire at the back of their pants. Because they just barely got out by grace. Because perhaps nothing really was ever accomplished eternally, but they believed in Jesus, so because His grace is huge, there you go, you're going home. But there are also rewards. And the Lord would call us all to that, to living lives of ministry and substance. Yes, you will be saved because you are in Christ, but there's a compassionate and clear warning to all Christians. Number your days. Number your days and ask the Lord, what can I do for you today? Confirm the work of my hands for you today, Lord Jesus. Paul said, Ephesians 5.15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And who doesn't believe that? Now, that's the practical version. We're going to go back and take about an hour and a half and go through now the prophetic. (laughs) Buckle up. Prophetically, the history of the world, specifically as relates to Israel, in five minutes or less, look at verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all creation. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and that is creation. We begin with creation, the creation of the world. Now we go on into verse 3. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, the fall of man. God created and breathed the breath of life into Adam and into Eve and and brought them out of the dust. But they returned to dust because of the fall. Because sin entered the world, so death by sin. The fall of man. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. And that's the line of Seth. The ten generational line from Seth all the way to Noah. Roughly a thousand years or so between the fall of man and the flood. Perhaps a little longer, but Moses says this is a a picture you are as for a thousand years in your sight or like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. So this span of time happens now. Creation happens. The fall of man happens. The line of Seth between the fall of man and suddenly we get now to verse 5. You have swept them away like the flood. The next thing on that calendar, on that prophetic picture that Moses is painting here, the flood. Well, that's not really prophetic, Pastor, because the flood happened before Moses. I know my Bible history. Okay, all right, stay with me. So he he goes all the way back to the beginning, brings us through the flood, verse 5 continuing. Now we get into the people of Israel. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. And Israel, under the hand of God, flourished. And we're blessed. An amazing 
call of a people chosen by God to do things no other people group had ever done. To be delivered in a way no people group had been delivered and brought into a land, conquering the land and rising up to the greatest kingdom under Solomon at that time on all the earth. Oh, truly they flourished, but toward evening it fades and withers away. So we have there the beginnings of Israel. Creation, the fall, the line of Seth, the flood, and the beginnings of Israel. Verse 9. Verse 9, or verse 7, sorry. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we have been dismayed. And you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished out our years like a sigh. And that word sigh, the King James translates it slightly differently, and it's interesting. A tale that is told. A tale that is told. You see, Israel is a tale that is told. Israel is God's storybook to man. That man might look at the way God relates to a people. A tale that is told. And it's a tragic tale, absolutely. Because then by verse 10 we find Israel in dispersion. As the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. As though dispersed. It's interesting, he does say that the days of our life contain 70 years. 70. 70 as applied to Israel. A.D. 70. Israel was destroyed and driven out. You can also apply it to the 77s of Daniel. 70 years. And I believe there's something there. Well, but Pastor Rick, it says, or if due strength, 80 years. So that kind of messes up your whole thing. Now listen to this. Or if due to strength, 80 years, a little extension, a little bit longer, you, you may be able to survive if, if you're strong. If you're strong. What's that talking about? After the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there were still Jews in the land. Titus, did you know this? Titus really didn't want to massively destroy all of Jerusalem. He didn't want to destroy the temple. In fact, he had told his men, Commander Titus of the Romans, told his men, don't burn down their temple. And it was an accident. It was someone who got a little rowdy, probably a little drunk, and chucked fire, you know, a torch into the temple. The temple caught fire, began to burn, the gold began to melt, and the men went nuts. And not one stone was left on top of another. But that wasn't Titus's original intention to completely raise all of Jerusalem. 8070. There were still Jews in the land. They remained there, and those, those tough little stiff-necked Jews, amazing, in A.D. 132, they stage yet another revolt. They stand up again. The remnant of Jews in the land standing up against mighty Rome and Emperor Hadrian, and Hadrian had had enough. That's it. I'm done. And his soldiers put down the Bar Kokhba revolt of 132, 600,000 Jews were killed over a period of 40 days in that revolt. And Hadrian then said, no Jews can even meet and talk in the street. And he took every Jew out of the land, save those who were sick or elderly or infirm. He left those in the land. So there was always a Jewish presence there. 
But everyone else taken out, cast away, and dispersed everywhere. He salted the lands all around Jerusalem to make them unfarmable. He renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina, Hadrian's capital. And then as a final slap in the face of the Jewish people, he renamed Israel Palestinia, Philistine land, Palestine. There are no Palestinian people historically. It's a name that's borrowed. We've talked about that before, and you need to be aware of these things. The UK, this last week, the UK recognized Palestine as a sovereign state. Several bishops right now have come out saying that Israel has lost their chance, that they are no longer God's people, and it's a return to replacement theology that the Pope himself, about a decade ago now, repudiated, but now it's back on the rise again. Our days are but 70 years. Or due to strength, 80 years, perhaps a bit longer. Verse 11. Verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you, the tribulation. Israel in tribulation. And note this, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And truly, days of anger and fury, these days will be easily numbered. The Bible tells us exactly how long these days are. From the moment a covenant is signed between Israel and Antichrist, the Bible is explicit, seven years until Jesus returns. Exactly seven years, which is one of the reasons I believe in the rapture of the church, because that can happen at any time and no one's going to know the day or the hour. But beginning with that signing of a covenant, the Bible delineates numbers seven years. From the midpoint of the tribulation on, it even gets easier to number. 1,260 days. A time. Times and half a time. Three and a half years. By the way, halfway into the tribulation, where is it that Israel ends up? They end up in a dwelling place in the wilderness. And we're in the wilderness psalms at this point. They're a dwelling place in the wilderness. And finally, finally after these things, verse 13, Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? Be sorry for your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you've inflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let the work appear... Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. The coming of Jesus Christ as they see Him coming on the clouds and they recognize God's majesty in Jesus Christ. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Keep your covenant, O Lord. And it speaks of Israel and the coming millennial kingdom. And Moses speaks all of this of the history of the world and of Israel. Practically and prophetically, this psalm speaks of the same thing. One thing, and it's the key of the whole psalm. And you might think it's verse 12, number our days. That's not the key. That's kind of a hinge point of the song, but the key in the door that unlocks and opens the door of this psalm. Listen, it's verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. All generations whether you're 16 or 60, whether you're 8 or 80, as we journey through the wilderness of life, God is our dwelling place. And here's what I want to leave you with. The word dwelling place is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's ma'on. 
And it's worth jotting down. Ma'on. M-A with a little apostrophe. O-H-N. Ma'on. The same word is used in Psalm 26, verse 8. O Lord, I love the, the, the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Ma'on. O Lord, you are our dwelling place. Ma'on. The word is used to speak specifically of the holy of holies, the most internal, innermost room of the temple. Ma'on speaks of the innermost room of a house. What are you getting at? Well, the word ma'on, when broken down and taken in its most literal sense, is a den. The den. The holy of holies. God's den. The family room. I don't know about you, but for me, the word den always brings up in my mind that most comfortable, relaxed, safe place in my house. It's the place where the children and Cheryl and I gather. It's comfortable. It's peaceful. It's fun. It's where the joy happens. The den. The dwelling place. The safe place. The refuge. Oh Lord, You are our den. You're the place we relax. And the place where we have joy. The place that we are at peace. Well, Rick, then shouldn't Psalm 90 be a sanctuary psalm? Nope. Nope. Because the dwelling place, the den, is in the wilderness. It's the reason for the wilderness. Forty years the people spent traveling in the wilderness and camping around the tabernacle. Why? That they might understand that the Lord was their dwelling place. Not Egypt. Not even the promised land. The Lord was the den. The place where the people could gather. Deuteronomy 33.27 Again, we read it earlier. The eternal God is our dwelling place. God is my ma'on, my refuge. Are you most at home in the Lord? Father, we long to be most at home with You. In that place of of Your presence, Your children gathered around our Father. We can almost imagine, picture, consider the fireplace crackling and the pillows on the floor and the the blankets on the couch and everybody snuggled in and, and family being family together and laughing or playing games or singing or whatever, but Lord, with You. And You're the one who brings the comfort to the dwelling place. You're the one who brings the sense of safety and security. A place where we can gather and know even in the wilderness we are safe in You. Oh Lord, teach us to number our days. And give us hearts that are passionate to the ministry of Your Word. To the Gospel in this world. But may we never forget, Jesus, as You said, Lo, I am with You always, even to the very end of the age. I am Your dwelling place. Lord, be that for us. And teach us not only to number our days, but teach us to dwell in the very presence of our God. We pray now as we come to You in worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.